today, we're going to be hearing from Raj Patel, an accomplished writer, professor, and activist. He's written books such as Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World Food System, The Value of Nothing, and A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. He also contributes to The Guardian regularly and co-hosts a food politics podcast called The Secret Ingredient. So a big thank you to Raj for coming out today and talking with us. In your book, Stuffed and Starved, that came out in 2008, you look at the relationship between how food is grown, who is growing the food, and who gets to eat the food. The reality continues today. Recently, the UN warned that globally we're going to be facing famines of biblical proportion due to the impact of COVID-19. Could you give us an overview of uh, the global food system so we could better understand what's going on with the food system today? The, um, I'm, I'm excited to be here and uh, pissed that I have to be doing this work uh, because uh, you know, the, the writing's been on the wall, as you said so eloquently, for a very long time. I mean, the, the global food system has been arranged um, through imperial capitalism in particular um, to, uh, to, to look uh, like an hourglass where there are millions of farmers, billions of consumers, and a monopoly concentration of power in the middle. So, you know, millions of farmers and, and you know, the, 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 the supply chain tightens right up there. Uh, and then we have a, a few sort of distributors and then the, the billions of us who struggle to eat every day if we can. Um, now, that food system and that concentration of power isn't new. Um, you know, uh, it, it may be uh, you know, obvious today to observe that there are four or five large meat companies, you know, Tyson, ConAgra, JBS, what have you. But um, uh, in the early 1900s, uh, the grain trading empires were similarly concentrated. You had Archer Daniels, Midland, Bungie, Cargill, uh, and uh, oh, there the, the was one that begins with D, which I'm completely uh, blanking on, it will come to me, Dreyfus. So, yeah. um, so the, uh, you, you have the, this, this sort of structure of monopoly built into the food system, uh, and you have structures of hunger built into it too. Um, one of the examples that is tremendously important to, to understand uh, comes from someone who will be speaking to, to, to everyone next week, Mike Davis, uh, who uh, has a fantastic uh, observation in his wonderful and, and, uh, you know, and not read enough book, Late Victorian Holocausts. Um, so the story he tells is uh, a story about how climate change works in the 19th century. And he observes that India at the beginning of the 19th century has these sort of periodic El Nino cycles. Um, but that in general, before the British really sink their teeth into the Indian economy, um, and when India is still a feudal economy, uh, that when bad weather events happen, uh, there is still the sort of noblesse oblige of feudalism to be able to uh, ensure that workers, peasants, have enough to eat. So, you know, if, if there's a famine, if the waters, uh, you know, if, if, if there's a plague, if things go sideways, murder hornets, whatever it is, um, if, if something bad happens to the harvest, the lords have to feed the peasants. By the end of the 19th century, though, uh, the, the British have succeeded in imposing uh, a system of, of liberal capitalism. Uh, and India is exporting more food than is ever produced. Uh, and by this metric, uh, the export economy is riding high and everyone's doing great, uh, except that more people are going hungry in India than ever before. Uh, and the, the figure that Davis finds is that uh, there's a famine every four years by the end of the, you know, the, the British tenure in India. But in all of India's recorded history before the British arrived, there's a famine every 120 years. 
Um, so, you know, you have to wait a century and a half for the next famine to happen. Things have to get really catastrophically bad. Whereas under liberalism, uh, things are repeated with, with a certain amount of regularity. And very interesting, um, if you think that, that, that I'm delving too deeply into history, it's important to, to remember that these kinds of arguments for liberal capitalism that, you know, yes, it's, uh, you know, there are some bad things that, that are attendant, but they're, you know, they're an accident and we can do our best to fix this, this problem of hunger. But actually what we need is open borders and food flowing everywhere. Well, it's, it, that argument is in The Economist today um, as uh, their dire warning about how it is that we should not cede into perfectionism uh, and that we should not let um, illiberal ideas overtake uh, the global economy. So uh, the, the idea, so, you know, just to sort of, frame it uh, as best I can, and in terms of a, a, you know, a short version, a short history of the global food system, uh, what we're seeing is the rise to power of certain elements of capitalism. Uh, it, you know, initially, it's about sort of colonial capitalism that's about uh, controlling land uh, directly through settler colonialism, as, as in the United States, uh, or the, the kind of imperial capitalism that you see uh, in, in India. Uh, and you have chains of supply that uh, are about sucking wealth, value, and commodities from poorer parts of the world, impoverished parts of the world, uh, to colonial metropoles. Um, in that process, you create new kinds of poverty, and those new kinds of poverty are deepened with every structural crisis where uh, you have an increase in the power of monopoly capital and uh, of structural monopolies within the food system. Uh, and so, it's not surprising, particularly in the food system, to observe uh, that poverty and you know, working in the food system go hand in hand. Seven out of the 10 worst paying jobs in America are in the food system. Um, and it's not just about uh, working in the fields, but it's about minimum tip wage. It's, you know, it, it, it's about working for tips. It's about again, and that long legacy of colonial, uh, of, of, of racialized capitalism and slavery uh, that attends the idea of tipping and uh, the idea that there should be some people who's uh, who can only be educated in the, the virtues of a good service and civility through tipping. Uh, and th th that idea of, uh, of tipping and the food system, of course, go hand in hand because this country was built through enslaved people working through the food system. But uh, throughout the, you know, the, the, the history of uh, the food system, you have classes of poverty that are about workers in the food system. Um, and it, so it's not surprising right now that as the shit hits the fan in, in the food system, um, it is the, uh, the food system workers who are both the most impoverished and considered the most uh, essential, which is to say that they are sacrificial uh, under, you know, under capitalism. Uh, these are the workers, poor, disproportionately people of color, um, and in certain sectors, disproportionately women, um, who are being thrown into the meat grinder so that, the, uh, you know, so that hamburgers can be produced. Thank you, thank you. Um... Before I ask the next question, we have a little comment from Drew, I believe. Is it possible if you could slow down just a little bit? Drew, if, thank you for your question. If it's, no, if it's possible. Um, <laughs> I, of you. course, I'll, I'll do my best, but I, I, okay. I do normally talk this fast. Um, and, uh, but but I, I want to cover as much as I can and then offer um, also speedy responses to questions. But there, there's right. a lot to cover. We've got such so, so little time, but I will do my best, Drew. You're, thank you're you. I appreciate it. Thank you. So going into the next question. Until relatively recently, the threat of global warming wasn't yet on the minds of everyday people. But in recent years, the environmental movement has gotten more attention. And today, with just a few exceptions, most people recognize the terrifying realization of the possibility of environmental collapse worldwide. 
could you give us your view of the situation that we'll be confronting and the impact on the global food system? I'm, I'm going to try and reject the premise of the question in a way that's constructive. Um, when we think about climate change, uh, it's, I mean, farmers, particularly peasants, particularly peasants in the global south, have been at the front lines of this for ages. Um, it's true that uh, the urban proletariat may not have quite witnessed the kinds of catastrophic change uh, that the peasantry has in the global south, but it has been happening. Um, and so, you know, it's been, it's been very interesting to be part of groups like La Via Campesina, the international peasant movement that has over 200 million members now. Um, and that movement of 200 million, uh, you know, radical landless people, farmers, farm workers, um, has been saying for a while that climate change is real, uh, that, uh, you know, that, that, that what, what they're up against is far less regular rains or far more intense rains, um, wider degrees of uncertainty, uh, the arrival of new kinds of pests and uh, the arrival of, uh, you know, sort of concentrated uh, weather events and, and cataclysmic weather events. That's been going on for a good bit. Um, and yes, La Via Campesina is a global organization. I mean, in the United States, uh, we've got uh, groups like um, the, uh, uh, the National Family Farm Coalition, um, who are part of it, but the Border Workers Coalition, I believe is the name in El Paso, are also part of it. And there, there's a, a range of, of local movements that constitute national uh, membership of La Via Campesina. Uh, and then there's a, you know, an international part. And although we have fewer peasants than, say, India, where the Karnataka State Farmers Association alone brings 200 million members um, to, to that, uh, or the Brazilian uh, Rural Landless Workers Movement, the MST, has a million members. Um, the US does have peasants and people who identify as peasants um, who are militants um, in, in struggle right here. So I, I mention all of that because it, 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 farmers have been at the front lines of what it is to experience climate change for a, for a fair amount. Um, and particularly people in the Global South have been. And uh, you know, what we saw last time as a result of both the intersection of climate change and the result of the Great Recession is something that's worth thinking about right now. Um, I, I want to tell you a story about uh, how climate change is not really the weather. Climate change, you know, we experience weather every day, but to experience climate change is to experience the intersection of capitalism and the weather uh, and uh, the human systems that exist between us and the histories of those human systems. So here's a story about um, fire and weather and global trade and capitalists. Uh, and it's a story that begins, I believe in 2010 in um, Russia, where Russia's having uh, a, an unusually uh, hot weather event. It's one of these you know, one in 500 year droughts. Now, because it's 2010, uh, and everyone's going through austerity. Russia has done a couple of things that a lot of countries did. It cut back on its public services, so particularly cut back on firefighters. Uh, and it privatized, it sold assets to, uh, you know, to, to capitalists. In particular, it allowed capitalists to uh, deforest and to, to take uh, native, you know, to take wild forests and to turn them into lumber. So um, you have clear cutting, you have lots of 
kindling left on the ground. And it's unsurprising then that when you have one of these five in what one in five hundred year weather events, uh, there's a fire, and it's a huge fire. It goes, it, it is beyond containment, in part because it's so big, and in part because the people who were going to contain it have been laid off because of austerity and neoliberal reforms. Um, and this, the, the fire spreads and it starts to threaten uh, grain. It, in particular, it starts to threaten wheat. Russia is the third largest wheat exporter. Um, and we don't know quite what the, the sort of causality is here, but the, there are globally a, a few incredibly powerful wheat trading companies. One of them in Switzerland um, was uh, yeah, approached the Rus Russian ambassador uh, and talked about uh, the possibility of you know, Russia getting into deep trouble if it exported its wheat and the price of wheat went high. And, and um, uh, you, you remember Mark Rich, one of these Wall Street, particularly uh, successfully prosecuted Wall Street criminals who then ran away to, to Switzerland. Well, he, you know, one of the trading companies he set up suggested to, to Russia that, um, uh, and the name of this company is Glencore, by the way. So one of the representatives from Glencore says, look, Russia, you should stop exporting grain. Uh, because then you'll be able to feed everyone within Russia and you won't have these price spikes that, that might happen as a result of uh, declining incomes um, and uh, you know, austerity and fire. And a few days later, Russia imposes a grain export ban. So again, in the intersection of capitalism, Russia, Russia's production, uh, it, it, you know, flow of grain into the world, um, and climate and weather. But the, the, the impact is global because, you know, the, the World Trade Organization and it's the U.S. Imperial Project through the WCO has been about rationalizing grain production. Um, that means that, that countries that had grain stores um, have gradually been privatizing them. Uh, and that means that there was a huge spike in the, the, the levels of, a huge spike in grain prices. Uh, and that caused uh, protests around food around the world. In particular, it caused protests for bread in Mozambique. Uh, now, this is odd because wheat is not native to Mozambique. Mozambique doesn't grow wheat. Wheat doesn't grow in that part of Southern Africa. But because it had been colonized by Angola, um, it had become normal for folk in Mozambique, sorry, by Angola, by Portugal. Um, to, it had become normal uh, in, in parts of Mozambique and throughout Mozambique to think that to, to, to have dignity in your day, you need to have your daily bread. So when the price of bread went through the roof, uh, the Mozambican government uh, found itself confronted by protesters. And what did the protesters want? They wanted cheap bread. And the, the government, uh, you know, the, the police started firing tear gas uh, at the protesters. Um, and because of austerity, they had not spent enough on tear gas. So they went to live ammunition, uh, which they had plenty of. And uh, as a result, dozens of people were killed by the police in what was a food and climate and worker intersection. Uh, it, so the, the story here is about the global trade system. It's about the power of Glencore and the power of finance. It is about the webs of trade and the history of colonialism that mean that uh, you know, folk in Mozambique want bread. And it's about the politics of austerity, of, of cutting back uh, in order to be able to pay your debts that are, you know, that we are soon to be falling into in the United States or in around the world, um, but which is important to remember as we come out of the, the you know, what, what appears to, to, to you know, again, when we come out of this, you know, great, uh, this, this depression, um, the austerity that will be prescribed by neoliberals um, will be precisely a, a war on the poor even more than it has been in the past. 
So th this is a way of unasking the question a little bit, Anne, but by you know, a, a way of enriching how it is that, uh, in fact, a lot of people have already been on the front lines of climate change and austerity. And this is an example from the past, but we can look to similar things in future. Got it. Thank you. Um, now, uh, I think all of us here recognize that uh, inequality has always been a fixture of this society and that the way food is produced is simply a facet of the inequality experienced by us all. Maybe you could give us your views on the lasting effects that this pandemic will have on the people of the world, both in countries whose economies have been dominated and distorted by colonial and imperialist powers, as well as in the advanced imperialist and industrial countries. Well, it depends, doesn't it? I mean, you know, are we going to be successful in revolution or not? Um, I mean, it, it's the, I mean, the, the, the story right now is apocalyptic. Right? Before uh, COVID, two billion people were food insecure, um, which is to say that you don't at some point during the month know whether you'll have enough money to be able to put food on the table. Uh, of those, there's a class of people who are way worse off. It's not merely not knowing whether food is going to be on the table or not, but you're actively malnourished. And although the definition of malnutrition is a little kind of, I mean, it, it, it's a political football, um, but we know that around 820 million people were food insecure, were malnourished for a year uh, up to the point of COVID. So, what the UN, as you, as you mentioned in your introduction, and is proje projecting is famine of biblical proportions, as if 800, you know, 800 odd million people already being malnourished wasn't biblically bad. Um, I mean, I don't know what Bible they're reading where things are, you know, things are fine until you add another 150 million to that number. Um, but it's, you know, th th things are already pretty crap. Um, and there's no reason to think that things won't get substantially worse because uh, let's look at what happened you know, globally last time. Um, again, after the, the, the Great Recession, which is really a sort of knee-high version of what it is we're going through now, um, the, we saw the number of Americans who are food insecure rocket up from, three, you know, from 35 million to 50 million. Uh, and, we had barely returned to 30, well, it had been about 40 million um, by the time COVID struck. Uh, this time, it's, it's going to be much, much worse. Uh, and this is, this is at the same time as Trump is ready to cut food stamps and make, um, you know, increase the, the work requirements for, uh, for uh, getting access to SNAP, um, the Supplementary Nutrition Assistance Program. Um, and you know, making the access, uh, you know, the, the 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 rights to food something that's contingent on the ability of you to prove that you're working. And in an economy where there are no jobs, um, this is really a way to 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 say to you know working people and their families drop dead. Um, we already know that uh, forty percent of uh, households headed by headed by single women um, are food insecure. Uh, and th this number is going through, you know, the, the numbers are going through the roof. Uh, and it's, you know, the, the US is lucky. Uh, we are in a position where countries that we have impoverished are sending workers to us so that they can remit money back home to uh, communities that are far poorer than the ones here. Um, the seizing up of the global economy has been a deep 
you know, a hole in the income of low-income com communities in the global south that, that depend on countries in the global north like ours to be able to send money back. Um, and those kinds of uh, intersections are, you know, well, the, the, those kinds of remittance flows are massive, right? If, if you think about uh, global aid from rich countries to poor countries, they are dwarfed uh, by the amount of remittances that are sent back by working working people working in uh, countries not only in the global north but just richer countries in the global south sending money back to poorer countries in the global south. So, for example, in India, uh, under Modi's fascist re regime, there, um, and I'm, I'm using the word uh, purely in its technical sense, uh, under under Modi, uh, migrant workers have been you know essentially paralysed on the road, um, have been beaten up by the police, uh, and that, that's you know just more visibly uh, the case now. It's I mean, it a routine part of the way that, that uh, the police operate in India. Um, but migrant workers, say from Bangladesh, are now not able to send their money back to Bangladesh. And Bangladesh is way poorer than India. And the, you know, the rural communities uh, that depend on you know, the, the working class in India uh, are in dire straits. Um, and you know, there's, there's it, I mean, it, it's pretty certain uh, that countries where there are uh, rural communities that depend on these kinds of remittances are going to be in some, you know, are, are going to be facing deep levels of malnutrition and poverty as a result. Or we'll have revolution and everything will be fine. Um, so, you know, take your pick. <laughs>